You are listening to Pursuing Justice. I'm your host, Harriet Hendel. Our theme for our series this time has been wrongful conviction. We met Seth Miller as our guest for the last two programs, and he is with us again for two more podcasts. Seth is the executive director of the Innocence Project of Florida, based in Tallahassee, Florida. I've known Seth since 2009 when I began volunteering with the project. I served on their board from 2013 to 2019. Welcome back, Seth. Hi, Harriet. Um, So happy to be here again with you. Yeah, I'm glad too. We have a lot to cover today. So let's just do a quick recap of our last two conversations. Um, We focused on the challenges of the pandemic while litigating for those who were wrongfully incarcerated. And despite those hurdles, IPF did manage to release eight men and women between 2020 and 2022. We also spoke of your leadership of the Innocence Project of Florida since 2006, and it occurred to me as an innocence organization, next year will be your 20th year, right? It will. It'll be our 20th anniversary in 2023. We're gearing up for it. Are you? Okay. All right. So just in case some of our listeners, and I never know, you know, who comes in that, you know, maybe hasn't uh, listened before, In case some are not up to speed, I wondered if you could do a refresher class on the key factors which contribute to being wrongfully convicted. Sure. And, you know, it's it's a great question because I think one of the main things that people always ask me is, you know, how did these wrongful convictions occur? I think there's a sense that we know that people get things wrong. We're human beings. Uh, But people always ask, how prevalent is this issue? And some estimates say that up to 4% or more of people in prison are wrongfully convicted. And if we have 100,000 people in Florida, that's 4,000 people. It's a lot of people. And so the... I would say the one the thing that is most problematic is that we have this National Registry of Exonerations. And we have now, um, I think it's like three over 3,000 people that we know have been wrongfully convicted and later exonerated since 1989. And it's a huge number. It's something like 27,000 years of wrongful incarceration among those individuals combined. And that's incredibly sad. But the one upshot of that is that the registry and other social scientists have been able to look at these cases and figure out what are the things that cause wrongful convictions, not just in one case, but in thousands of cases so we can see the trends. And what they've seen is that there are a number of uh, consistent causes of wrongful convictions, uh, the first and foremost of which is eyewitness misidentification. So this is a situation not where a witness is framing someone, but rather a witness or a victim who is uh, the, um, you know, sees a crime or is a victim of a crime uh, from someone they don't know is has a, a photo lineup or a live lineup or even a one-person show-up procedure that Um, that, you know, they're a part of, and they need to choose who they believe most resembles the person who committed the crime. And what we have found is that these folks aren't, you know, lying when they make, when, you know, they pick someone who's not the right person, but rather they're simply mistaken. And there's all kinds of factors, both things that um, are 
inherent in the criminal episode, uh, you know, the weather, whether they're blindfolded, what the lighting was, um, whether the person has poor eyesight, um, whether there was a gun and they were distracted from looking at the person's face, like these sorts of things. But also the way we uh, prepare lineup procedures and administer them to uh, victims and eyewitnesses can lead people to uh, uh, make misidentifications that lead to wrongful conviction. So we put a lot of effort, that is the innocence community put, has put a lot of effort in over many years to uh, push law enforcement agencies to adopt best practices to help prevent uh, influence and um, from creeping into those eyewitness identification procedures to make them more reliable scientific endeavors and hopefully lead to more reliable outcomes. Um, you know, we've also seen that false confessions are a huge problem. People actually confess to crimes they didn't commit. They do it, you know, for lots of reasons. Maybe they, they themselves are part of a vulnerable population uh, that might be more prone to admit to something that he didn't do to end an interrogation. It could be that the interrogation tactics being used are such that would overbear anyone's will and cause them to falsely confess. Um, and so, the, you know, this is one of those issues that we've also been working on to try to get law enforcement to record, video record the entirety of uh, custodial interrogation so that we can see the nature of the interrogation that leads to a confession in order for us to better judge the confession's reliability. Because oftentimes you can tell by the interrogation that leads up to the confession, um, whether it is such that, you know, the confession cannot be relied upon. We know that bad forensic science uh, has led to wrongful convictions. Uh, DNA testing itself has been a thing that has told us that certain things we once thought were good scientific methods of identifying people or connecting people to crimes um, are, are not actually good scientific methods. In fact, they're junk science. And so, um, you know, we're constantly struggling even today to try to get folks in law enforcement to not use these newfangled techniques that seem like good shortcuts to get to answers in criminal cases, because those are the types of things 10 years down the line that we're going to find didn't have any scientific validity and actually led to the ensnaring of someone who had nothing to do with the crime into a criminal prosecution. Um, and, you know, prosecutorial misconduct, bad defense lawyering, uh, the, the, you know, police misconduct, we see that the institutional actors on both sides of, of the criminal case can make uh, mistakes, sometimes intentional misconduct that leads to folks getting uh, wrongfully convicted. And so that's another thing that the registry tracks. All this is to say is that I think there's this sense, I think it's a wrong one, that these wrongful convictions are just flukes. And I think the better way to think about them is that they're systems errors. You know, they're, you know, like planes crash, right? And when, when planes crash, um, it's actually usually not a fluke, right? It's a situation where a whole bunch of confluence of events conspired to make that plane crash. You know, the person who's make, doing all the safety checks cut a corner. You know, the pilot, um, you know, was drinking, you know, um, or was otherwise distracted. Um, you know, it's a whole bunch of things put together that causes the plane to crash. And we don't sit here and say, oh, we should ignore these things um, because it happens so infrequently. In fact, we do the opposite. We figure out why it happens and make all kinds of policy changes to make sure that um, we can prevent it from happening in the future. And that's kind of what we are trying to do um, in the innocence movement is to figure out why these things happen and try to prevent them in the future. 
Now, we, we know all the things, the list that you just gave us, and um, I brought it up before, and I'm sure there'll be times where we'll be discussing it again, but it's been happening for so long, and we do have the list that you just went down. Why is it that it seems that the mistakes occur, same ones, again and again, and it doesn't seem to be this commitment to find out why and and rein it in. Well, I, I, it's a great question. I, I do think that you know, within any huge system, there is always inertia and, um, and there's always resistance to change, right? And so, you know, if I'm a defense lawyer, even a social scientist, and I'm studying you know, the phenomena of wrongful convictions. And it is the people who I'm trying to convince to change the way they do things are homicide investigators who have been working for 30 years. You know, what's the normal response? Irrational or irrational. The normal response is, I've been doing this for 30 years. You study these things in the lab, right? Or you are a, a liberal defense attorney, right? Um, who's study, who, who works on these things. You don't know the first thing about it. And by the way, it's very rare. And therefore, I'm not going to spend my time changing the whole way that I've learned how to do policing in order to prevent this thing that is exceedingly rare. And, um, and so I think that kind of, it's a cognitive bias uh, against change. Um, it's, um, you know, working cases based on gut as, a, as opposed to hard evidence. It's, it's particularly in more complicated, higher profile cases. It's where, where you need to solve the case because there's political implications for not doing so. It's rushing to judgment and cutting corners in order to, um, you know, manufacture answers to really tough questions in these cases. Um, and there are people within law enforcement and prosecutorial communities who are bucking that trend, but there's not enough of them, right? And um, and I think you know, we expect when, you know, I would have expected maybe by now that we have over 3,000 known wrongful uh, convictions where people have been exonerated um, and lots and lots of uh, prescriptive measures have been taken to change the way we do policing and, and prosecuting of cases that this would have filtered fully down by now, you know, over, over almost 40 years. And yet it hasn't, but things don't change in a, a day or a week, a month, a year, 10 years, even generation. Um, and of course we have humans at the center of this endeavor. So it's always going to be difficult. We're never going to be able to eradicate wrongful convictions, but I guess the, the larger point is we need to do everything we can to change the way we do things to prevent them as much as we can. Right. And the numbers that you referred to before, um, they're really the tip of the iceberg. I mean, your your best guess, of course, is 4%. But if you think about the 2.3 million people who are in prison and you, you do the percentage there, uh, that's that's incredible. And what, what's so sad is that um, so many people who say, I am innocent, will never get the help of an innocence organization. Uh, and they will die in prison. No, that's right. And, and you know, it's I don't know whether that is shows the importance of our work or an indictment of our work. Um, but I guess the point is that um, there are not enough people doing this justice work 
to serve the entire population who needs the help. And even, you know, the people we do get to, there's a percentage of those folks where we believe they're innocent, we have evidence to prove it. And yet, despite our best efforts, the system does not allow them to be vindicated. And, 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 and they, you know, will remain in prison and in most cases die there in spite of the effort and that um, to get them out and the evidence that we have to prove it. And um, so even when we can prove it, uh, the system, uh, you know, is really designed to preserve convictions, even wrongful ones, and make it very difficult for us um, to vindicate someone. It's not designed to do justice. It's designed to perpetuate injustice. Right. Um, I wanted just to mention very briefly, uh, you went down the list of factors, of course, that contribute to wrongful conviction. And um, in January and in February, I have the great pleasure of interviewing two authors who have written two brand new books. They're just out in the fall. And um, one title is Junk Science, and that's January. And the other is False, um, oh, the title is Duped but it is about false confessions and that's February. So um, I encourage people to, uh, you know, stay with us and certainly delve into the, uh, the topic more so because there are two fascinating topics and, and two fascinating books. So um, the last time that we met, um, you mentioned the, um, the cases of uh, the eight people who, were able to be released during the, uh, the two years uh, of the two really bad years of the pandemic. Um, I wondered, uh, would you be able to tell us a little bit more about, we, we talked about the two women, maybe one of those cases and uh, um, maybe delve into it a little bit. Yeah, sure. Um, so, I mean, I guess I could talk about, um, Stephanie Spurgeon, you want me to talk about Stephanie Spurgeon's case? No, we, we did that last time, the two women, but oh, I one, one of the men may be on the list. Okay, yeah, Do great. Do you remember I mean, I, who they were? <laughs> yeah, of course. I'd love to talk uh, okay. about, I'd love to talk about um, Robert Dubois. Okay, um, very good. Let's yeah, Ro- Robert Dubois um, uh, was a gentleman who we had the uh, pleasure of uh, representing with the Innocence Project in New York. And um, he was a case out of Tampa. He was convicted and um, convicted of a, a, a rape murder that occurred in Tampa um, in 1983. Um, and it was of a, a young woman who was just walking home from work and she was found um, murdered in an alley behind a dental office. And the police had no leads at all. Um, and um, but what they did have, or what they thought they had was a mark on um, the, the victim that they thought was a bite mark. And so without any leads, they basically took um, you know, took this bite mark that they thought was a bite mark, and they simply went around doing a bite mark dragnet. And mm. they um, basically got dental impressions from a whole bunch of people who lived in the area who they considered you know, kind of hooligans, if you will, or people that um, they had thought um, you know, had been in trouble before. And Robert was someone who um, had been in trouble for like nothing major, just some vagrancy stuff. He he went into an, a, a house that was under construction and like took something, nothing you know 
you know, it's a crime, but nothing's too serious. And yet they took his impression and uh, a supposed bite mark expert said that it matched the mark that was on this victim. And then they brought forward a jailhouse snitch in order to say that he confessed to the crime. And that was the case against him. And he was uh, wrongfully convicted. He was actually sent to death row. His sentence was later commuted to life sentence. And he spent decades and decades and decades in prison. And there was like nothing, we, nothing you know, much that people could do about it. We couldn't find the DNA evidence. Um, but the state attorney's office in Tampa created a conviction integrity unit. This is a unit designed to look at cases of wrongful convictions in an independent way. And the head of that unit, Therese Hall, actually found the microscopic slides from the rape kit. Um, mm. at a place that they weren't, uh, they were, they weren't supposed to be, they were at the medical examiner's office and we were able to do that, um, testing and the testing, uh, demonstrated that there was male DNA, uh, from the victim's rape kit that didn't belong to Robert Dubois. And it actually matched, there was a mixture, it matched two individuals who were convicted and in prison for committing a crime that occurred the same day that um, Robert Dubois was arrested for this crime. And so another another uh, rape and murder in a, in a separate case. And they think they've actually committed a number of rape murders in the area. Um, and so what this showed um, was that, well, one, the bite mark wasn't Robert Dubois, obviously. Um, but we had an expert who is former president of the American Board of Forensic Odontology, which is the professional association for bite mark experts. And he looked at it and determined that it wasn't even a human bite mark. It was mm. likely some kind of mark from, you know, uh, being poked. Um, and so he read a situation where he was ensnared in this because of this junk science of bite marks. And it's not even because of the analysis, even though the analysis was wrong, it was because the person, the, the, they identified this as a bite mark in the first place and then kind of got um, askew from there. And so he spent 37 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. But the, the key thing was, is that once we they create the conviction integrity unit, once we were able to work with them on uh, that case, it really broke everything open. And he was able to, we were able to develop that evidence. He was able to be exonerated. And that was in August of 2020, he got out and he was exonerated in September. And we haven't mentioned that, but I have mentioned this on many other podcasts. Um, was he compensated by the state of Florida for having been wrongfully convicted? Uh, so the answer is no. I mean, not yet. Uh, not he, yet. He has, you know, he got out in August of 2020, was fully exonerated in September, a month later in September 2020. And we filed a petition um, uh, for his compensation, but he, you know, can't be compensated under the statute that exists in Florida because it has what we call clean hands provision that prevents you from getting compensated if you have um, a certain number of prior felonies, which he does, even though they're very minor. So we had to file um, legislative bills in each house of the legislature to individually compensate him. So pass a law just to compensate him. Oh. And, um, and for three years running, so I guess it would be in, 21 and 22. So this will be the third year coming up. But for two years running, um, the legislature didn't pass the bill. And so until the law changes or they pass those bills, even someone who everyone agrees is innocent will not get compensated. That's awful. And there are also, as I mentioned before, there are plenty of states um, that have no compensation 
at all, no matter what. Florida, That's right. Florida does, of course. Well, hopefully, you know, he will in time. How how is he doing now? I mean, he's he seems to be doing really well. I mean, he's um, you know living uh, he's living comfortably and he's working. He does he's like a handyman, um, you know, contractor, jack of all trades kind of guy. Um, and you know, he's he's just a great guy. He does a lot of work for people. You know, re, doing electrical rewiring of houses and all kinds of different uh, jobs and. And on his spare time, you know, he goes to homeless encampments and feeds homeless people. He goes really? to co- takes the little bit of money he has and goes to Costco and buys uh, in Sam's Club and buys, um, you know, big boxes of stuff for um, uh, to to give it to homeless folks. Makes sort of care packages for them. And so he's just a good dude. And um, and he's just another example of someone who uh, most of their adult life and their entire adult life was taken from them the wrongful incarceration and even when they get out um you know they're self you know selfless and and care about other people even though the world didn't care about them and uh it's it's remarkable it is well we are almost out of time for this podcast um i wanted to have you tell our listeners about the fundraising event coming up for uh, innocence project of florida in early 2023 how can they find out more? And also, um, if people wish to contribute to our organization, how can they do that? Um, we are having uh, a three-night comedy run uh, from February 9th to 11, 2023. February 9th being in Tampa at Friday Morning Musical. It's a great venue. February 10th at the Lake Park Black Box Theater in Palm Beach County. And February 11th at the American Heritage School in Plantation, Florida. We have great comedians. It's a great opportunity to raise money for the Innocence Project of Florida to fund our work to free the wrongfully convicted. Uh, You can go to our website at www.floridainnocence.org. That's all spelled out, all one word. And you can get information about those events. And you can also find many places on the website to very easily push a button and financially contribute to our cause so that again we can assist people to be free from wrongful incarceration and help them uh, re- uh, once they regain their freedom to reintegrate back into a changed society to have to better their lives. And one thing that's very important that uh, you work pro bono, which means uh, free of charge for all of your clients. Um, Innocence Project of Florida is a nonprofit organization. Just before we sign off, I want to invite our listeners to uh, come back and listen again for part four of this series. And Seth has agreed to join us again. This We're going to take a, an interesting little turn. <laughs> um, Seth has been involved in a podcast, another podcast, um, my competitors. <laughs> and uh, the podcast is called Bone valley uh and he has a key role in this podcast slash case so that's what we'll be talking about when he returns so please join us for another edition of pursuing justice on society bites radio and thanks for listening see you next time thanks for listening to my podcast today You have been listening to 
Pursuing Justice on Society Bites Radio. And I'm your host, 